The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for another Lord's Day. We pray that you would bless our time as we are equipped by your word to help each other. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we started last week, the basics of biblical counseling. By way of brief review, what biblical counseling is not. So what is biblical counseling not? What's that? Yeah, right. Or um, we could say, like, quote, Christian psychology. That's not what, what we're talking about. Um, anything else that it's not? What's that? Yeah, it's not therapy, right? And um, as we think about uh, what we're talking about when we say biblical counseling, we have to make sure that we understand that on the one hand, we are not talking about uh, an integrative approach. Okay? And a lot of times, uh, well-meaning people will, will look at um, sort of joining together um, the idea of secular psychology with, with Scripture or with the Christian faith, and they look at it as some sort of integration. And what ends up happening is then you end up getting sort of the re, uh, uh, sort of redefining psychological terms with sometimes just biblical terms. But at the end of the day, um, integration is not... Um, I, I would actually argue that integration is not possible for two reasons. Uh, the most basic is that there's an antithesis between an unbelieving worldview, which is the foundation of secular psychology, and, of course, a believing worldview, which is based on Scripture. Um, to put it in the, uh, in the terminology of the early church, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Okay. Um, but there's another reason why I think integration ends up being somewhat impossible. I mean, by impossible, I'm not saying that people don't do it, but what I'm saying is impossible is actually working. Um, is that a lot of times what integrationists do is not integrate at all. What they do is they take the, the system, whatever it is. Remember, there's 250 different psychological approaches, all right? 250 different uh, um, schools of psychology, if you will. What they do is they take their system of choice, and then it's, it's not integration. It ends up being inundation. So it ends up being just simply trying to baptize the system, which, of course, is not the, a, a true idea of integration, um, and so, when we say what is biblical counseling, we start with it's not the idea of just um, marrying together secular psychology or therapy with um, the idea of biblical counseling. So, when we say what biblical counseling is, we said it's a, a number of things. 
It's a ministry of the word, right? It is a ministry of the word. You realize that there's all different kinds of ministries of the word, right? So what's going on over there and what's going on over there with our kids are ministries of the word, right? What do we have? We have Sunday school teachers that are faithfully doing what? Teaching Bible lessons to our children, and that is a ministry of the word. Um, What's going to happen in the morning service and the afternoon service is the ministry of the word, right? Well, there's also, in a sense, a personal, personal ministry of the word, right? And when we talk about biblical counseling, in a sense, that's, that's what we're talking about, is a personal ministry of the word. All right? What else is biblical counseling? Discipleship. Yeah. I mean, and what's discipleship? It's actually just learning to follow Jesus, right? More and more. Any of you follow Jesus, like, perfectly this week? Even considering that it was a short week, holiday week, Thanksgiving, your hearts are already filled with gratitude. How many of us followed Jesus perfectly? The answer is none of us. We all need help in following Jesus. And so when we talk about biblical counseling, really all we're talking about is learning how to better follow Jesus according to the scriptures. We said it was something else as well. Yeah, sanctification, right? Sanctification. So, by the way, this is going to kind of, as we wrap up this uh, uh, lesson today, if you keep in mind, biblical counseling is discipleship, it's sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is, is really growing in conformity to the revealed will of God and being conformed to the image of Christ. By the work of the Spirit, that's sanctification, that's part of the goal of biblical counseling. And then we said it was one last thing. Yeah, it's, in a sense, you could say this in a lot of different ways. You could say biblical counseling is Trinitarian, right? You could say that um, that biblical counseling is uh, counsel from the word, from our Father, pointing us to likeness to Jesus Christ done in the power of the Spirit. So the biblical counselor, all right, is, uh, is a person who's doing what? Is they're simply trying to point the person they're trying to help to Jesus Christ through the lens of, of, of the problem that the person has, right? In other words, um, we're not just trying to fix, fix problems by giving a few Bible verses to maybe stop a certain behavior, all right? Uh, is stopping certain behaviors the, one of the goals of counseling? The answer is, of course it is. But what we're doing is we're using the word, we're using the gospel in a redemptive way so that we're not just talking about behavior modification. We're talking about heart change. We're talking about a a redemptive change of heart that leads us into a deeper relationship with the Father through the Son, right? And so, um, 
in that sense, what we're looking at then is, is really, it, biblical counseling is a process, but it's also, it's also a redemptive process, right? And we're not going to get into uh, examples of how that could be right now. We'll touch on that later. We talked about the three contexts of biblical counseling. The primary context is it's a local church, right? Um, every once in a while, well, not every once in a while, unfortunately more than we'd, we'd like, um, people want to go and... Um, go talk to somebody that doesn't know them, okay? They'll come in, I've got a problem. Is there somebody that I can talk to that is, and usually goes like this, who's a professional, okay? Right, and so, (laughs) by the way, just think about that. So you have somebody that comes in and sits down with their pastor and they say, look, I've got this issue, can you recommend that I, a, a professional, all right? <laughs> you know what they're saying, right? <laughs> I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about, right? Um, and so a lot of times they want to get out of the context of the local church. They want to get counsel from a, quote, professional who doesn't know them. And I would say that all genuine biblical counseling takes place within the context of the local church because this is the place where we have committed to each other to actually to seek to help each other grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Um, there's another problem of actually seeking um, uh, counsel outside of the local church, and I'm not saying that in an absolute way, all right? We, we'll, we, we'll qualify that later. But <clears throat> what if... What if, I, what, what if the sin in my life that I'm looking for help with is, is a sin that, um, let's say, if I, if I don't repent, I should be disciplined for, right? The, the minute that you remove biblical counseling outside of the, of, of the parameters of the local church, you've just actually cut off one of the one of the biblical means of grace of helping someone, which of course ends up being church discipline, right? And so uh, we'll talk about the idea of um, pledging confidentiality to somebody that comes uh, and asks for help. Uh, I would say that you never, actually, never say promise confidentiality ever. Um, what if somebody actually um, admits to a, a crime? Okay, you just have committed yourself to confidentiality when, in fact, the authorities should be informed. What if somebody actually confesses to something that should be disciplinable, but you've now vowed confidentiality? Right. So you never vow confidentiality. Okay, so we have local church, then in the context of Christian friendships, remember one good, solid Christian friend is better than 10 certified biblical counselors, and then small context, one-on-one, marriage, family, fellow believers. 
All right, so who's qualified to be a counselor? (laughs) If you're a Christian, you are qualified. Okay? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yeah, you have to know Scripture. All right, well, if you're... Okay, all right, let me back up. (laughs) All right, um, so... If you're a Christian, right, and you've got God's spirit, and you know God's word, you're totally competent to counsel somebody, all right? And so, what does that do? Well, what, is that, what that does is it makes us realize that we have a mutual responsibility to one another to help one another, right? And that, and that could look like a, a thousand different things. Um, is it is it um, is, is there going to be a context where somebody comes and let's say rebukes me for something they see in my in my life that that's that should happen what if um, what if I feel like I have a, a besetting sin that I just can't seem to uh, overcome? Should I go and talk to another brother or sister? And the answer is, of course. Um, what if I'm in grief? Somebody shared a great story with me last week about an event that can't, happened in their life, and it was uh, it brought about a tremendous amount of grief and unsettled their life. And the uh, company that she worked for offered to send her for free to get... Um, um, psychological therapy, and she went maybe once. I can't remember what she said about that, but then uh, she said really it was her friends at church that did more for her than anything else, just having somebody to talk to, having somebody to pray with, right? That's what we are, that's what we're talking about, all right? So, um, presuppositions of biblical counseling, and that brings us up to where we left off. Some of this is repetitive, but it's okay. So, the presuppositions of biblical counseling is the foundation is God's revealed word, right? So, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? Making a division between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, you have that text and about 25 other texts, right, that deal with the way the Word of God works in our life. And so the first presupposition that we have as, um, as biblical counselors, right, so if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, you have the Word, you are, in fact, a biblical counselor. And what is the, the, the first presupposition is that the Word of God is sufficient. The sufficiency of the Word of God. Now... Um, the Bible is not going to tell me how to reset a, a broken femur, okay? So we're not talking about sufficiency like that. The Bible's not going to tell me how to fly an airplane. We're not talking about sufficiency like that. We're talking about the fact that the Bible is sufficient for all matters relating to both faith and life. So if, if a couple's having marriage problems, is the Bible sufficient to address those problems and set them on the right course? Yes. The answer is yes. 
if a person is, is, is battling a besetting sin that they feel as if they are, you know, let's say they use the term uh, addiction, right? The Bible would use different terminology. Addiction can be like more of a medical model, and we're not saying there aren't physiological factors, but let's say you feel in bondage to a sin. Is, is actually scripture enough to address the issues of the heart and put the person on a path of repentance? And the answer is yes, right? And so when we say that the Bible is, the, our presupposition really is the, the, the holy scriptures, it's the foundation of our counsel, um, and we'll come back to this, but the, the fact is, is that if I sit down with somebody, it may be great if, let's say, they're an older person and they have some wisdom and maturity, but really what's going to help me most is not the wisdom and maturity they have because they're old. It's going to be what they tell me from the Bible. That's where the help's going to come from. All right? The second presupposition is that the goal is sanctification, conformity to God's will, putting off sinful behavior, putting on godly behavior. And so let's turn to, uh, to Daniel's book, the book of Colossians, and <clears throat> just take a, a, a peek here at a few passages. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So what, what does that have to do with the second presupposition that the goal is sanctification, right? Paul says we proclaim him. So Paul's not just talking about preaching, is he? he preaching is included, but how do we know Paul's talking about more than just preaching? Well, look at the text. All right. So notice, notice the language here, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Okay. So we're proclaiming Christ, right, which includes preaching, obviously, but we proclaim Christ in a way that we're also admonishing every person and teaching every person with wisdom. So there is, this, there is this individual or one another type ministry, and then what's the goal? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. So this is the goal of proclaiming Christ. This is the goal of admonishing everyone, teaching everyone with wisdom is what? To present that person complete in Christ. Um, the, the, the goal is, is to... Um, be engaged in the process of sanctification so that that person comes to a maturity. And so, back uh, or over in chapter 3, Paul says, uh, starting at verse 5, and you actually could go through this whole thing and apply it, right? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And so just look at that that list, right? So so the members of your earthly body are, obviously it's your physical body, right? 
by the way, that's where sin um, typically manifests itself. All right? Yeah, you can have sins of the mind. You can have sins of the tongue. Well, sins of the tongue would be the same. But where does sin manifest itself? It manifests itself in our body. But then notice immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Think just about evil desire. Okay. So if you go to, um, let's say you have um, an evil desire, all right? And you go to a secular psychologist, Will they tell you that the evil desire is actually evil? No. Will they do anything to help you actually put it off? No. Evil desire is a heart problem, right? And so if you have evil desire, so today, if you, let's say you have um, uh, same-sex attraction, okay? So today... Um, that's not viewed as, as evil. Would the Bible call it evil? Yes, of course it would. Um, would the Bible compel me to deal with it as opposed to just live with it? Yeah, right? So, so what ends up happening is that the issues of the heart are being addressed in biblical counseling so that we put those things off. We learn to put those things to death, right? So it's not just a matter of, of, of in a sense, being admonished and, and taught with all wisdom, but it's also having, in a sense, um, our sins biblically diagnosed and then by the help of God's grace, word, and spirit, actually putting those things off. You, of course, could go on, and Paul says, verse Eight, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who's being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so when we say that the goal is sanctification, we're, we're talking about conformity to Christ, conformity to the uh, will of God. We're talking about putting off the deeds of the flesh, putting off the old man, putting off things from everything from evil desire to anger to abusive speech, right? The whole gamut, idolatry, which is, which is greed, says Paul. And what are we doing? We are actually seeking to put on godly behavior, okay? So when, when, when we say the presupposition of biblical counseling is, is sanctification, what we're saying is if, if, if a couple comes in for marriage counseling, the goal is not simply to have them get along better. The goal is for them to have a God-honoring, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting marriage. Again, we're not interested in just, you know, and, and this is why marriage counseling, for instance, which is always the most difficult, truly, because you're, de- you're dealing with two people, not one. And so um, marriage counseling, a lot of times, um, we end up getting, giving, in a sense, really, 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 
um, just to say, superficial advice. A couple comes in, they're at each other's throats. Every conversation turns into an argument. And the counselor says, take her on a date. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like going on a date and getting in a fight and then wasting money because you just went to a really nice restaurant. We're talking about the word of God transforming the heart. That's the goal. So the third is that the efficacy in counseling is that the word and the spirit work together. And so the counselor is conscientiously dependent on the word of God and on the spirit, all right? So if, if you find yourself in a counseling situation and you're not constantly saying, Lord, help me, <laughs> you, you're probably going about this the wrong way. Right? If you're not sitting there going, Lord, give me wisdom right now. Help me to understand this. Right? If, you're not, if you're not consciously thinking, Holy Spirit, please actually bring, bring some, some pertinent texts to my mind right now that, that, that apply to this. Right? So the, the biblical counselor is not just resting on their certification or their knowledge or their experience. They're actually consciously depending on the word and the spirit. Right? If, if somebody comes to you with a problem and you think that this is a no-brainer and this is, this is easy breezy, um, then you're not, you're not actually depending on the word and the spirit for help and insight in order to help this person. And so when we say the efficacy of biblical counseling is the word and the spirit working together, by implication we're saying that the counselor then has to conscientiously, wholly be dependent on the word and the spirit. All right? Number four, presupposition as believers, we have the hope of present change. Do you think that there will be times if somebody comes to you, whether it's marriage or parenting or besetting sin, or maybe they've been grievously sinned against, and let's say that it's gone on for a long time, let's say there's a lot of bitterness, there's a lot of animosity, there are, there are these, these underlying issues of unforgiveness and all of that, do you think that that person can feel hopeless? And by hopeless, I mean the idea that this is the way it's been for a long time, and I guess this is the way that it's always going to be. Can a counselor feel hopeless? <laughs> oh, absolutely. There are times where you're just like, Lord, uh, I, who is adequate for these things? Seriously, who is adequate for these things? And <laughs> one of our presuppositions is that the hope for change is always a present hope. And so, where in the world would we get the idea? Let's say somebody comes in. I mean, there are times where, where you think, okay, let's see, in, um, in, 
in 500 cases over the years, this is, this is about one of the worst that I've ever seen. Okay. Why in the world should you have any hope that there can be any change I believe in the gospel. All right? I believe in the gospel. And I believe in the savior of that gospel. And I believe in the word of God. I believe... I believe that this book is actually a supernatural book. It's an inspired book. It's an authoritative book. And it's a book that's completely sufficient for life and practice, or for doctrine and practice. And so, so my, my reservoir of hope is not in, oh, yeah, I've seen this a thousand times, no problem. Just, uh, you know, memorize this verse and, you know, uh, you know, call me in the morning. It doesn't work that way. But even in, the, even in the times where you feel as if there is no hope, we stand on the power of the gospel, the power of the word, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, can God effect change? And the answer is yes. Do you know for sure that God will effect change? And the answer is no. I don't know that. I simply don't know that. There are going to be times where it seems so utterly hopeless and you will hold, in a sense, in the back of your mind, the confidence, Lord, I know that if you were to intervene and to bring conviction and to do a work, there could be real change. But I can't do that. As a counselor... I am incredibly limited. I don't have the power to change a heart, period. Even guys or gals that are like really good, really gifted, it's, they don't have the, the inherent power to actually change somebody. And so if you've got a, a marriage that's absolutely falling apart and you may have um, one of the spouses who is absolutely committed to their path of defiance and the other spouse desperately wants reconciliation, what does hope look like in that situation? Because we have to define what we mean by hope. Let me qualify it like this. The hope that we're talking about is not the hope that the circumstances will improve. So what hope does, uh, does that couple have? Well, let me just say that the one who wants to continue in his rebellion and his defiance doesn't have hope. Right? What about the one who deeply desires reconciliation? What hope does what hope does she have? What's that? Her, her hope is Christ. So 
Are there going to be things in this life that are painful things, things that you'd love to see changed, but yet at the end of the day, those circumstances are outside of your control and you have to resign yourself to this, that my, my only hope here is Christ. My only hope for possible change is Christ, but whether that change happens in my spouse or not, my hope is still in Christ. Can that change your attitude as you face the trial? Can a counselor give that kind of hope? to somebody whose circumstances seem nearly hopeless? The answer is yes. And so, we want change. We believe that change happens. But the goal, one of the presuppositions is that we counsel from a perspective of hope. Of course, we hope that... Now, if... if Let's say it's not a marriage situation. Let's say, the, the, you know, um, in the words of that great evangelical theologian, Pogo. Of course, there's, I've just dated myself. Okay? You, anybody remember Pogo? Oh, really? This is so sad. You guys need to go into counseling. Pogo was a possum, okay? It was a cartoon figure. And Pogo, and this is a famous cartoon, Pogo looks up over the crest of a hill and he says, we found the enemy, it's us. Okay? We found the enemy, it's us. And when I start to realize that the problem is me, and I start to realize that the problem is not outside of me, when I start to realize that um, blame shifting is just a tactic of Satan in order to, to keep me from change, by the way, just make it, make it known loud and clear, as long as you're a blame shifter, you'll never change. As long as everything is everybody else's fault, you'll never change. Okay? But let's say I'm, I'm done blame shifting. I realize I've met the enemy. It's me, and I want to change. Is there hope for me in the gospel that I will change? The answer is a resounding yes. It may take a, it may take a while. In fact, guess what? It probably will take a while. I usually tell people something like this, you know, um, you've, you've just brought here a big tangled uh, spool of fishing line. This is because it's been tangled now over the course of years, right? How long is it going to take to get this untangled? It's going to take a while, all right? It's going to take a while. And in fact, you may be thinking that things are going pretty well, and then all of a sudden you find another knot that you didn't know 
right? And so, but here's, here's the point is that when you sit down with somebody, we always have the hope of the gospel and the power of God's word and the hope of God's spirit. And is it God's will that God's people be conformed to the image of his son? And the answer is that is in fact God's will for you. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, and so that change can entail all different kinds of things. Don't reduce, don't reduce the, the change to just simply action. We can have change in terms of the way we think. In fact, do we need to have changes in the way that we think? Do we need changes in the way that we feel? Do we need uh, changes in our emotions, what we love, what we hate, what we like, what we dislike, what repulses us, what attracts us, and so forth? And the answer is yes. And then do we need change in terms of our actions, bad behavior? And the answer is yes. And here's the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the gospel transforms the whole person. Is it easy to get into sinful habits? All right, if you've been a Christian for more than 12 minutes, it's pretty easy to develop sinful habits. Sinful habits of thinking? By the way, here's the biggest enemy. (laughs) What goes on up here? Sinful patterns in terms of our emotional life? You ever see a person that just has simply developed the habit of outbursts of anger? And then sinful patterns of behavior, bad conduct. And here's the glorious hope of the gospel. Is that we can actually discipline ourselves by the word through the spirit for the purpose of godliness. So if you are an angry person, The hope of the gospel is this. Jesus died for angry people. Right? Is there the hope of change if Jesus actually put that sin to death on the cross? The answer is, of course. Maybe you're a greedy person. Jesus died for greedy people. Maybe you're a bitter person. Jesus died for bitter people. Right? And so the hope of the gospel to change our hearts, our minds, and our actions for the glory of God is absolutely astonishing. And, and that's the thing that we need to make sure that we, we close on that note of hope. All right? All right, six characteristics of an effective biblical counselor. Of course, the first one you may know already, a biblical counselor must be committed to the sufficiency of Scripture, rely on the Holy Spirit, and accurately handle the Word Okay. You want to be an effective biblical counselor? Starts right there. Okay, we've already hit on this. Um, and again, <clears throat> let me just reiterate: we don't want to be the person that, when somebody comes to us, we're counseling them on the basis of our own understanding. Okay. Well, I've been married for thirty-six years. Let me give you my marriage wisdom. I've raised three kids. That makes me a bona fide expert. Okay? 
Well, let me just say this. Let's say you raise three kids. And let's say you're batting three for three, and all three of them are outstanding Christians. Does that qualify you now to be the expert on how to raise Christian kids? The answer is no. Let's say you're batting zero for three. Does that disqualify you from giving helpful counsel to somebody? And the answer is no, right? So your batting average doesn't have anything to do with it because, um, you know, uh, Ariel and I, for uh, many, many years, have just adopted the parenting motto, take no credit, take no blame. The ones that turn out, turn out by the grace of God. The ones that don't, do so on the basis of their own choices. Number two, the biblical counselor sees oneself as a fellow believer helping another fellow believer, right? So, um, again, that language from uh, Galatians 6.1 where Paul says, Brethren, if any of you are caught in any trespass, overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And so, um, again, the biblical counselor is just, the, the biblical counselor is the very first one to say, you know what, we're all in the same boat. My sin may be different than your sin that we're talking about right now, but guess what? We're all in the same boat, and we're all just trying to persevere, and we're all trying, we're all trying to get to heaven safely, and we're all trying to do it with, um, with, with as much um, grace and faith as possible, and so we're, just, we're, we're here to help each other, right? And so right now, I may be helping you, but there may be a time in the future where, where you end up helping me. There is, there is a beautiful mutual one another in, in uh, the effect of biblical counselor. Number three, the biblical counselor is a good listener. What's James 1.19? Okay, and there's one more. Hmm? Yeah. So, slow to speak. I don't know if that's hard for anybody in this room. <laughs> slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear, right? Quick to listen. And so let me just, let me just spend just a little bit of time on this because I would say that, that far too many biblical counselors jump to conclusions or, quote, diagnoses before they've listened well. They start to hear some of the circumstances and then they jump to the conclusion that they know what this is all about. And I want to say that you need to avoid that. Being a good listener requires asking good questions for better understanding, right? Um, to, 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 To... to actually be able to draw the issues of the heart out by good questions is a mark of wisdom. Being able to listen and to pick up things that then lead you to ask different questions than maybe even what they are expecting. Again, relying on one's experience or knowledge actually can short-circuit our listening. This actually ends up being a mistake. 
And so we listen and we listen well. In fact, there are going to be times if you sit down with somebody and let's say you've designated an hour, it may be that that first hour you do nothing but listen and ask questions. Well, that's a waste of time. No, it's not. It's actually not. Now, if you've seen somebody for 718 times, you don't necessarily have to give them that hour up front to... To, 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 but you always want to make sure that you're a good listener. And so why do you have to be a good listener? Why do you have to, in a sense, have your, you have to have your antenna up, right? You have to be you're praying that God would give you insight, that God would give you ears to hear. Why? Because most times the problems that people want to talk about are net, not necessarily the problems they should be talking about. Counselors sometimes talk about a presenting problem. The presenting problem is the problem that's on the surface. It's the problem that makes me want to talk to somebody, that makes me want to get help. And yet, oftentimes, that presenting problem actually is, 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 is not what the real problem is. There's, there's a classic example in Scripture. So Aaron and Miriam are angry with Moses because he married an Ethiopian. You remember this going back in Numbers chapter 11? And they're like, oh, I can't believe Moses married an Ethiopian. And then, so what might appear to be the problem? Well, they're just being jerks for one, but, you know, we, I, you, you could imagine Moses, uh, Aaron and Miriam go and they find the, the, the first um, ACBC certified counselor in, uh, among the Hebrews. And, um, and they say, you know what? We, we've got a problem with our brother. Oh, well, what's the problem? He married somebody we, didn't, we don't approve of. We don't understand why he would do this. Presenting problem. What was actually Aaron and Miriam's real problem? They were jealous. They were jealous. And it takes God saying, okay, you three out here right now. Why why is Moses the only one that gets to talk for God? We're qualified, right? So the anger over the Ethiopian just was simply, in a sense, it was a veil, for a bitter jealousy that was under, underlying in their heart. And so uh, in, in order to actually get past what, what seems to be the problem, and I mean, you could easily imagine, let's say in a marriage context, right? So how many times do you think over the years um, we've seen situations where a couple comes in and they say our problem is A, B, and C, and if, if, if you just take that at face value you don't realize that the real problem is X, Y, and Z. How do you get there? Good listening, good questions, and dependence on the Spirit of God to give you insight. All right, number four, again, very, very important. Biblical counsel will refuse to take on the offense of another. 
So let's say you've got somebody that wants to come and talk to you and they've got conflict with another person. Now, that other person could be a spouse, that other person could be a family member, that other person could be a fellow church member, and they come and they want to talk to you, and, and you listen, and by the time they're done, you're just sitting there incensed. I cannot believe they would say that to you. I cannot believe that they would treat you that way. I can't really Vic did that? Oh my goodness. I, I always knew there was something, something wrong with that guy. You can't trust the Canadians. It's just the bottom line. Right? What have I done? I've taken on the offense of the offended. Now at that point, have I taken a side Yes, once I take a side by taking on somebody's offense, am I objective any longer? Not at all. In fact, I have, I have a perspective that is completely now skewed in favor of the person that's come to me and against the person that they say has offended them. And so... Am I in a position to help the other person? Not at all. Am I in a position to help the person that's come to me? No. No, I'm not. Why? What what do you think the chances are that person that came to me and I've now taken on their offense? What do you think the chances are? Just, I mean, just kind of ballpark a figure here for me. What are the chances that they probably have a significant contributing sin or sins in this as well? Yeah, I'd go with 100%. They may not be the main offender, but guess what? Okay, now, we'll talk um, in the near future about um, what to do in cases of, of abuse, all right? Um, which which puts a, di- a little bit of a different spin on how you handle this sometimes. But here's the bottom line is uh, Proverbs 18, 17. The first one to present their case seems right until another comes along and <laughs> examines him, right? So the person, the, the person that, that's come to you and has just been able to blah, all of their grievances and on the, uh, from the other person, and now you're just, you're, 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 you're covered in their, in their morsels of, of <laughs> conflict and vomit. And now you're like, yeah, that guy, that gal, right? Is it important to hear both sides if possible? Absolutely. Okay. Will hearing the other side often complicate what you've heard? 100%. This is, by hearing the other side, you're not making life easier for yourself. All right? You want an easy life? 
Just take their word for it and then act on that basis. Be wrong, ruin them, ruin the other person, and then go on your way. If you want to complicate your life, though, make sure you try to hear the other side. When you hear the other side, all of a sudden now, it becomes incredibly difficult. And sometimes you just frankly need the wisdom of Solomon. But what happens if you don't have access to the other side? does that limit what you're able to tell the person who's come to you? It greatly limits what, that, what you're able to do for the person who's come to you. How can you actually counsel in terms of conflict when you don't have access to the, a person in the conflict. You only have access to one person in the conflict. Well, all of a sudden now, everything that you say to the one person in the conflict has absolutely, in a sense, it's removed from their complaint. You don't have any way to verify their complaint. So now what are you doing? Now, in a sense, you're telling that person, you need to go to Christ. You need to search the scriptures. You need to seek to reconcile. You're telling them things that you would tell them regardless of what the other person has done or has not done, all right? So taking on the offense of another person is an absolute killer in terms of biblical counseling. And so we refuse to take on an offense. Number five, Biblical counselor has thick skin. They don't take things in a counseling context personally. I can't get insulted because somebody didn't do their homework. I can't get insulted because my counsel wasn't followed. Can I be grieved? Yes, but I'm grieved in a way that's not about me. I'm grieved in a way because this is about this person's life and their walk with God and maybe even their eternal destiny. So, so I'm grieved, but I don't, I don't actually... I'm not the son of God who is bearing the sins and the burdens, right? I'm trying to help. But I've got to have thick skin because if, if you're going to speak the truth in love, is it possible, just maybe remotely possible, that somebody who comes to you for help and you speak the truth in love, they actually don't like what you have to say? Not that that, in 30 years, that's never, ever happened to me, right? No, the, the, the reality is, is it happens regularly, And you try to be gentle with somebody, you try to be straightforward, you try to speak the truth in love, but there are going to be people that are, that that end up getting angry with you, and you can't, you can't take it personally. You can't take failure personally. I mentioned last week, does biblical counseling ever fail? The answer is it fails all the time. Biblical counseling fails in Genesis chapter 4 where God counsels Cain. Cain rejects that counsel and becomes the first murderer. Was God not effective? Well, God spoke the truth. But there are times 
where people simply won't listen. There's a great passage. I know I'm over time, but there's a great passage um, in the book of Jeremiah. And um, so the, the people, of Israel, or people of Judah have been, um, have been exiled. And this group uh, is actually a, a clan, a, a big family comes to Jeremiah. And they say to Jeremiah, Seek the word of the Lord for us, and we'll do whatever the Lord tells us to do. And Jeremiah says, so is what you're saying is that I should seek the word of the Lord, bring what God has to say to you, and then you'll do whatever God says to do. And they're like, yes, that's what we're saying. And so then Jeremiah goes, seeks the Lord, and says, all right, come on, I've got the word of the Lord, and he tells them the exact opposite of what they want to hear. And you know what they say? You're not, you're not speaking for God. That's not the word of the Lord. Right? Okay. How common is that? Well, it really depends. How, how, how bad do I want to get out of my sinful state? If I love it too much, I'm not serious about hearing the word of the Lord. But if I hate it and I want to get out and I want to change, then I'm willing to hear and embrace some pretty uncomfortable truth. And finally, the biblical counselor tries to instill Christ-centered hope. All right? Well, next week we'll pick up with can I counsel an unbeliever and then talk about... um, Basically, what do you do when you sit down with somebody? So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's sufficient for for doctrine and for life. And we pray, Lord, even in the hour to come, that you would do a mighty work among us through your word and by your spirit. Father, we pray that you would give us the sensitivity to um, be willing to help others and also to receive help ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.